Hello, welcome to the next episode of Lessons from the Lab. I'm Devin Rubin from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm going to be hosting this new episode in which hopefully we'll learn something about an uncommon problem and uh, so a little bit about neuromuscular ultrasound as well as EMG. I've I've been looking forward to this episode. It's been a bit difficult scheduling our guest because she is a world traveler. She's all over the world, both uh, for pleasure and teaching. She's a world expert in neuromuscular ultrasound. And I'm going to present a case to her that she is not aware of. It's a case that uh, was somewhat complicated. And we see sometimes in our laboratory of a patient that has some shortness of breath and is, we're asked to evaluate for the cause of the shortness of breath. So I hope that this is educational. I know I'm going to learn something. I hope you enjoy it. And let's get to our guest. All right. Well, well welcome to Lessons from the Lab. I'm Devin Rubin. And joining me today is a wonderful guest, Andrea Boone. Hi, Andrea. Hi. How's it going, Devin? <laughs> it's going well. Uh, Dr. Boone's a professor of neurology and physical medicine and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. That's where you are right now, right? You're you're yep, at work today. I'm, I'm at work. Yeah, and you're doing you're doing intraoperative monitoring right now. Today, that's what I'm on. Yep. Okay. Well, fortunately, I'm not going to talk or unfortunately about IOM today. We won't discuss that. We have something more interesting to talk about. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad to have you on this. Uh, I know it's been hard to 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 schedule. You're you were in New Zealand. Yep, yep. Just got back from New Zealand. Um, I try to go there every Minnesota winter because it's uh, the summer in New Zealand, so it's a good time to get out of here. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Got to see family and get some nice weather. Play a little golf with my okay. dad, who's turning ninety. <laughs> nice. Did he teach you yeah. anything and teach you well, any tips, or do you teach he, him? He, he gets a little upset that uh, now I can outdrive him. I'm like, well, Dad, you are ninety, and then he. <laughs> He, anybody who's a golfer will laugh because he was upset that he shot a 93, which, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, people would be fine with that. <laughs> right, right. Well, I certainly would. And I would never be upset when you I out drive me and you have done that many times. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a nice time and are, yeah, are back great. home. Well, part of this, this lessons from the lab is to, um, is to kind of discuss an approach to a case so we can teach the viewers. And I always like to learn something myself when I when I have guests on here. So I thought I would present a, a brief vignette and just kind of pick your brain on it and see how you what you would do in in, in the lab and how we, you would approach this patient. So uh, you ready? Yeah, I would just like to preface this with that it's very hard to teach you anything, Devin. I think you know it all. So <laughs> well, I don't know much about what I'm going to present. So, uh, so I'm going to rely well, on you. Hopefully, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a case that we had in our lab a few months ago, and the the history was kind of vague. But he was a 60 year old man, and he had had sort of some chronic neck pain, but he had um kind of a period of time over a, a week or two, and it was vague with increasing pain. And then after that, he developed some shortness of breath. And um, he basically, and, and, and he couldn't say it was it one day or was it over the course of a few days, but over about a week or two, he noticed that his breathing was more difficult. 
And it was particularly worse when he would lay down at night uh, or exert himself. But laying down in particular, he he was short of breath. And he had never been like that before. And so he went to his primary care physician and to evaluate this. And they did a chest X-ray. And he was known to have an elevated hemidiaphragm at that point. So, um, so he was sent, um, he was sent to EM, the EMG lab to kind of evaluate his respiratory function. And, um, they were worried about his diaphragm or his phrenic nerve. And so they wanted to see if that was the problem or if he had some other problem causing a shorter shortness of breath. So that, that was kind of the story. He didn't really have any other other neurologic type of symptoms. It was more really the the dyspnea that that presented to the EMG lab. So I imagine you've seen patients like that. Yeah, we we get a lot of people referred to the outpatient EMG lab at Mayo Rochester for a lot from pulmonary uh, in particular, but kind of rule out neuromuscular weakness as a cause of their shortness of breath. Um, so it's yeah. a pretty common presentation. So yeah, and and we see that too, and and so I guess the question, if if you if if this was the patient that you know came to the lab, what is your approach to this patient? What what do you how do you evaluate so, them, or what do you think? Yeah, so so obviously I think you know you want to get your your uh, focus history and exam and make sure it really is just isolated respiratory dysfunction. Otherwise, you might be looking at doing a more extensive workup, uh, you know, ruling out things like ALS and other uh, myopathies that could involve the diaphragm preferentially. But if it's purely the chief complaint is shortness of breath, our typical approach, we kind of have an algorithm that works well with our technicians and then the physicians doing the study together. Our technicians will go in first and do phrenic nerve conduction studies bilaterally, and then actually will do an initial ultrasound exam for us and take a look. I always say start with the good side. If there's if there's one side that's supposed to be elevated, then start with the other side for the diaphragm ultrasound to kind of get a baseline. Um, so we'll do an ultrasound of both sides of the diaphragm. And then if we need to, depending on the findings from the phrenics and the ultrasound, and also depending on the kind of clinical index of suspicion, we'll do diaphragm needle EMG, typically just on one side. But really, we will do both sides. Do you do you do you do conductions in elsewhere, like in an arm or a leg, or do you just go right where the diaphragm is? Again, it depends on the patient. Um, certainly, it'd be very reasonable to kind of do a, a little bit of a workup in, say, an upper limb. Um, so again, depending on what my kind of initial differential diagnosis is. So a lot of times these, uh, Parsonage Turner cases that can affect the phrenic nerve preferentially. Um, so it can be helpful to do nerve conductions, motor and sensory in an arm along with some needle EMG. Similarly, if there's any question of myopathy, it's nice to do a few axial muscles, um, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, well, you could do an axial muscle and then, you know, do a, a couple like a deltoid and a biceps just to make sure you're not missing a myopathy. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to be keeping your, your differential diagnosis uh, open. But if it's purely shortness of breath, we might do the diaphragm workup. And if everything looks perfect, we might not go down that route. Mm -hmm. Kind of okay. depends on the individual patient, I think. Right. Using your clinical acumen. Sure. Yeah. Well, can I show you uh, actually what, 
what we did. It's, sure. it's interesting. I'm going to show, uh, share my slides here. Hopefully you can see yeah. this. And you have okay. an algorithm. And it's funny that you say that because we kind of do the same thing. And you might not right. be surprised since we're similar, different sites, but similar institution. But <laughs> This, I don't know how well you can see this, but this is what uh, our text did, exactly what you did. They did, um, this is the right side over here, and uh, this is the left phrenic. Right. And so, so that's pretty impressive. I mean, they they got obviously no response on the right side, and they used, it looks like you use the two-channel recording, which we do. So we use two different techniques because sometimes you'll pick up a better CMAP from a different area of the chest wall so we put g1 in two different areas and then um on the on the non-affected side you've actually got a pretty good c-map there it looks like what's that um so yeah it's like is 0.4 is it 0.4 yeah 0.4 and yeah 0.5, so yeah that's pretty good for a phrenic c-map i think you know and i mean there is a big big dip there it makes you always have to worry about uh volume conduction with phrenics because you're pretty close to the brachial plexus and so it can be easy to uh, you know stimulate inadvertently stimulate the plexus and you can get a response that looks like a real c-map um I, what was your stimulus can you see what the, i think um, we were given yeah what? i know we both are having a hard time <laughs> seeing it. we're getting older and uh, it's yeah, like I'm 20 it was like 21 or 20. oh so that's low stimulus yeah it was pretty so low. that's nice i mean they did a good job and i'm sure you know sometimes i just t talk to the tech and they're like yeah it just popped right up on the one side and the other thing you can use to help you confirm if it's a real response is ask the patient they should feel a hiccup if you're stimulating their phrenic nerve yeah. So if they get a nice hiccup on that side and you get a nice response, then you can be more comfortable that that's a true phrenic C-map, um, even though that, that morphology, especially of the second response, is a little bit atypical and yeah. makes you sometimes worry about volume conduction. Do you, do you think that you have to do both techniques? So xiphoid and then... Uh, you know. I, I like to because you'd be surprised how many times we choose one technique one time and the other another time. I mean, it's not very uh, consistent as to which one's going to be better. And if you get a response from both, I think that's just kind of nice as well. Um, I, I don't think it hurts to do both. It's very easy just stick on two more electrodes. So what's right. the downside? And, and, I, and I think maybe, I don't know if you agree that you know, these are nice responses, but many times the responses are lower amplitude. We're not really sure. Is that really a response or not? So, right. And that second one on the right side of the screen, you know, if I just had that alone, I'd be more worried about volume conduction just because of that big dip and everything, you know, mm -hmm. the first one is, is a nicer, it's more of a response I'd like to see. So again, that helped having them both there, I think. Yeah. So if you, if you got this, would you still do ultrasound? Um, so, yeah, I would. So I would, the reason I would do ultrasound on the non-affected side is just to kind of see what a baseline is. I definitely do it on the affected side where we got no response. Um, but I like to, you know, if we're going to do one side, we usually do both. And there's a few reasons for that. One is if you start with the normal side, it kind of gives you, it's a lot easier to see a normal diaphragm on ultrasound than a very abnormal one. So you know kind of what depth you should be finding the diaphragm at on the image. And then you can look across to the affected side and try to correlate that. Okay. Um, it also, a lot of these patients that have a very abnormal side, often the normal side will, will 
really be a robust ultrasound response. So in other words, you'll see a decent thickness at rest and then it will double or triple in thickness um, when the patient breathes in. And so they have a very healthy diaphragm that's kind of compensating for the other side that's not working. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice to get a feel for for how well the unaffected side is working. Well, we did do it. So I'm, mm, I, I'm going to have you, you know, don't Perfect. critique our technique, but <laughs> um, it, and so, and just before I show you these, I'm going to play these two videos and see what you think about them. Um, you ha- you said you have your techs do this. So our techs are really quite good at this now. And so they will do it. Um, and most of the time they're better at it than quite a few of our staff. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, some of the really hard ones we go in and we, and we try to figure, you know, we'll go in and do it together as a team, but our techs and our fellows, we train our fellows to do it too. So usually it's those people doing it typically. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to play these and I know it's always hard when you're not, when you're just looking at someone else's image or oh, video. No, these are but, good images. It should be but, easy to see. Yeah. So I'm going to play this. This is the, the, the right side, side of the normal side. So yeah. I'm going to play this here. So, yeah, I don't know. I can't use a marker, but um, so there we go. That There's the lung coming in there on the right. A, right. The lung here. So this is the diaphragm, right? right well, here it the... should be. Yeah. Although it was interesting because that lung comes in a little bit lower, a little bit deeper than I would. Here. Here's the lung, yeah. right? Yeah. So actually, yep. That's all. That's so. Do you think this whole thing is the diaphragm? I, I'll play it you, again. Yeah, if you look at the very end of the lung coming in, there's almost a layer. There, that, that layer below it is the diaphragm. Right here. It's actually it a layer. No, like right below that. Down see, here. See there? Yep. And then if you watch that, that got really thick, because the top of the diaphragm. See that layer yeah. there. So on this I'll, view, you don't even see it. I'll play it again. That's here. intercostal the one that looked like diaphragm right there. That's all diaphragm. So this is all diaphragm here. Yes. yes. And this is the intercostal. Yeah. And this is a tip that I use to identify what is the diaphragm, the top of the lung. So the most superficial aspect of the lung is going to be at the same level as the most superficial aspect of the diaphragm. And anything above that is intercostal. Because if you think about what you're seeing, when you breathe in, you're looking through the chest wall between two ribs when you look with ultrasound at the diaphragm. And first of all, there's diaphragm is the layer immediately below the intercostal. When the lung comes down and expands and comes into your field of view, the diaphragm is going deep, you know, down into the abdomen and out of the field of view. So they're actually exactly at the same depth. Hmm. So it's a nice way. So this is a tricky, this is really interesting. I don't think I've ever seen one that looks just like this, but you had to watch it. The video was super helpful because yeah, you only up. see it at the end of the video. So like there. So go back just a little bit. Yeah, I'll stop yeah, it. Play it uh... again and then we'll stop it. I'll tell you when to stop it. So stop it there. And if you, and if you could just roll. Yeah, if you can roll back. See that layer there? Right here. Yep, yep, yep. 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 That's your diaphragm. Yeah. So it is tricky because if so, you don't look, if you look at it, I'll go back if you look at it right here yeah what now, you're saying is people could get fooled and say this is all yes. diaphragm when it's yeah and the one tip there is that the layer the, the layer that of the top layer of muscle actually goes over a rib right it goes right across the top of a rib yeah up, up there here. so that cannot be intercostal because right. intercostal is between ribs so that's abdominal that's external oblique comes all the way up 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next okay. layer is truly between the two ribs. So, so that you follow intercostal. The rib, yep. So we know that that's the top of the intercostal. And then exactly the diaphragm on this image is a little hard to see, but it's that next it, layer. Yep. Down here that you can't see until yeah, you're until saying until you right here. Yeah. And and if you keep going, you actually so that's there. That there. that's it. That's it there. Right here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Huh, and that's interesting. And then that's actually a typical picture. You can see the kind of the white line in the middle of it. That's sort of the we mm-hmm. think that's the central tendon forming. You see some fibrous tissue within the muscle, but the the whole muscle is from the top white line to the bottom white line right right here. there yeah. yeah so how do you how would you know that this is i mean if you saw this you you would think this is normal right yeah absolutely that looks like a nice normal size diaphragm and then if you this is a bit of a tricky video but there is at one point you can see that it really thickens nicely i can't remember if it's maybe right like right, right before the lung here. comes in it's starting to thicken and it gets even thicker right there it goes all the way down yeah um, oh yeah yeah i'll try to get back i see what you mean maybe right here well where's yeah the, yeah because yeah, there's exactly. the lung and so as the lungs coming back it's going back yeah, it's, as you see it back it'll be just a split second you know yeah i didn't get the right spot but get, yeah yeah so okay so you're one. looking at you're looking at the thickening of that of, yeah of the diaphragm and that we tells also, you it's contracting yeah you look at the baseline thickness to see if it's atrophic if it's more than but it can be pretty thin at baseline. So if it's more than 0. 0.13, 0. 0.14 centimeters, um, then it's normal thickness. Um, but obviously a lot of people it's much thicker than that. And then you look at the thickening ratio. So it should be contracted. It should be thickening, getting at least 20% wider okay. and ideally more than that. Okay. So let me play this one. This is the affected yeah. side and yeah. see what and you so think about just to- if you just look at the layers again, so you can see there's the rib. And so right off to the right of the rib, that first layer is going to be intercostal. Yeah, from there, actually down to that. To yeah, and then that's oh, going to be the diaphragm, that little white. This. That's mostly, it's it's almost all um, connective tissue and hardly any muscle it looks like to me, but we'll see on the video. So you're looking yeah. at the signal, the hyperechoic signal here compared to down here it looks very different yeah there's hardly any blackness in between the white peritoneum and pleural coverings of the diaphragm right so, so here i'll one, play it yeah so there you can see a little kind of black and he's trying to take a he's taking a breath so yeah and it's not doing anything if anything a lot of these ones will actually thin when they try to take a deep breath in i think the diaphragm kind of gets squashed between the lungs and the and the yeah. liver um is this the right side? Yes, this is the. Yeah, this is I the, thought so because look, it's got that nice liver underneath it. The liver always gives a right nice here. acoustic window. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so, so that's probably at rest, and then he's trying to breathe in, and it actually looks to me like it gets a little thinner, mm-hmm. which is so something we've kind of observed. It's called we call it paradoxical thinning. So I think you just get these very atrophic, floppy muscles that there's just not there's no muscle tissue left and so when they try to breathe in deeply they kind of their liver kind of comes up because they're using all their abdominal muscles to try to breathe in and then their lung does expand some and it just i think it just kind of squashes that tissue right um the diaphragm between those two and and it actually gets a little thinner whereas right right it should always get thicker when you breathe in because that's when the diaphragm is active okay so this is very abnormal. 
right? Yeah. And this yeah. fits with the what you would fit with the absence C map. Yeah. You know, there was no CMAP, and he's clinically quite impaired, even though it's unilateral. You know, they used to say, a lot of clinicians, you say, oh, if you've got unilateral diaphragm involvement, you don't really get very symptomatic. That has not, that's not my experience at all, mm -hmm. um, especially in people who are a bit obese. You add that on, and it, and it makes it so much more work for the diaphragm that they really notice their symptoms, even if it's unilateral. Mm -hmm. um, and there's definitely a decent number of patients with unilateral involvement that get the orthopnea and, you know, dyspnea on exertion and, and trouble bending over to tie their shoes. Right. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you're, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this, Devin, but we, we actually published a paper to try to improve awareness. You know, any patient with this should be told about the risk of immersion. There's been near drowning episodes when people people jump in and just that extra pressure on the abdominal wall and on the chest wall, they they really get short of breath and into trouble in the water, um, uh, even with unilateral diaphragm wow. involvement. Yeah, I don't know that I was familiar with that paper. So you public that's been published. Yeah, just recently in the last I don't know two to three years, Chris Klein uh, was the main one, and he just felt strongly that we needed to educate you know clinicians out there to warn their patients. Right. When they do have phrenic nerve palsy, even if they don't seem very symptomatic with the routine stuff, to be very careful when they first get in water to make sure they don't get, you know, right. impaired. Right. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, so good. Well, that's really helpful. And so this, just to show you, this is the same picture I just took. Yeah. The, took the, and so as you so can you see, see that little way. black area is all it is. So that's probably, yeah. you know, like point, point seven, less than I a think. millimeter. Yeah. So that's probably 0.7 millimeter. That's got to be millimeters. in millimeters. Yeah. 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 So, so it's less than a millimeter. Right. Yeah. And I think the other side, oh, I was just going to show a normal, but yeah, I don't, I didn't, the other side I think was. It would have been like, I bet it was at least two millimeters. Yeah. You right. know, and so you least... look at the thickening and just, I have one more picture here of a normal. I mean, I think this might be the other side, the, the good side, but. I'm curious if, if, so this is inspiration and expiration. This might no, be a the different, other way different patient. Expiration, yeah. expiration and, and inspiration. Yeah. My question for you is, I don't know how well you can see where the marker is, the line at the yeah. measurement. Is that where you would measure typically, or how do you decide looks, where to measure? So, yeah. So what I do, yep. That looks like it's well measured. The, the main error I see is people, a couple of things, one, including the white, um, connective tissue which in the case we just had if you do that you get a much thicker measurement than you should be and yeah it's not accurate so i do not include the connective tissue i just put the caliper directly inside it and these okay. look well marked and then uh, sometimes people will do because of the way you know it's kind of on an angle just because of the anatomy of the diaphragm so you want to make sure you're perpendicular to the angle of the you know to the so direction kind of the diaphragm this, kind so of how this is yeah yeah exactly right. rather than if rather you were than to take straight down far, exactly because then you get quite a bit longer measurement and it's not as accurate right that would be the only but yeah they look well well marked to me and then like so when you're deciding on so you can see i guess my question is also here you see the diaphragm you see it over here and i'm going to play one more last video here and this is an, another one different patient Sorry, the marker's still on there, but if you, you know, you see the diaphragm there. thicken, and then the lung comes all over here. So, you know, I'm not at the bottom right. state, intercostal space of the extent of the lung. Yeah. So what, it, does it matter it where you measure? 
it doesn't matter where you mess, measure unless you're going to call it abnormal. So if you find anywhere that's thickening nicely, you know, I think it, it's fine. It just shows that it's functioning, it's working. What I do say is if you find an area where it's abnormal and you're going to call it abnormal, then make sure you scan around and check a few different areas because there are some normal people who have just these little areas of eventration in their diaphragm where it doesn't thicken in that spot. So I, I, that's my main caveat is make sure you're not overcalling it by not looking in enough places. And the other thing would be I try to measure it in an area where I can safely put a needle in if I want to needle it later. So I don't like to do a space where the lung's coming in at the beginning of a breath. You know, ideally you find a space where there's no lung coming into the field of view when they take a deep breath. So, so this want, space would you be want pretty needle. risky because, you know, you put yeah, your needle and you're right in the lung there once they take a breath in. Right. So typically if you go down lower, like another intercostal space, one or two lower, you'll be able to find an area where the lung doesn't come in. Or right. it only comes in with a really big breath in, and then you just don't have them do that while you're needling them. Um, but from the point of view of getting measurements, you can go really anywhere that you find a nice picture. In different people's anatomy, you sometimes have to scan around a bit to find where you can see it best. Yeah. Do you think this is a normal lung? Uh, a yeah, normal this is, diaphragm? This is very normal. Yep. You can yeah. see. This is me, all... I think. I'm pretty sure this is mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say so that case that you had that we just presented with the completely atrophic side I've never seen one that atrophic where you can even find the lung coming in because they're not expanding the lung enough they're not able to flatten that diaphragm and bring the the lung down into your area where you're looking right um, so that's kind of another tip off if you see a lung like this you should be finding a good healthy diaphragm yeah if, it's, if they're moving that much air and and going back to this this last uh, this case, so would you so with this information, would you that would you needle this? Would you put and try to put a needle into here? And you know, it would depend a little bit on it would depend a lot on the clinical scenario. First of all, the patient would have to be okay with it. Um, secondly, it would only if it was going to base some some treatment decisions on finding out that information. So. What the needle can tell you is, first of all, it can confirm that it's neurogenic, not myopathic, but that's unlikely when it's so unilateral. Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised to see the other side looking so good and this side this bad and it, and it be a myopathic process. Uh, from a neurogenic process, if it's neuropathic, you would expect, you know, it'd be nice to get some information about, are there any motor units? Are there any fibrillations left even? Sometimes these become electrically silent because they're just so atrophic. You don't find anything with the needle. Mm -hmm. Um so if the if I somehow think I really need that information, I might, but a lot of our physicians won't even needle it when it looks like this, um, because a lot of times it's a matter of, if it's Parsonage Turner, which he sounds like he had a pretty good history for that, you, you want to wait at least, we typically wait at least a year to a year and a half, but actually there is some evidence to suggest that some patients might see some improvement even at two to two and a half years. Like Dr. Klein sees a lot of these patients and he said he's seen a number that have actually got some recovery that that late. Hmm. So, um, you know, typically the the main treatment for this, if you're going to do something surgical, is going to be plication. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to hold off on that is not a bad idea until you make sure they're really not going to get any recovery. Right, right. So, um, okay. So the needle exam might help give you some idea that there's some intact yeah. nerve with some right. motor units. but. Right. But when you see 
I guess what I'm hearing is maybe maybe if you have no CMAP, you have no thickening, you have a very small diaphragm, the chance that the needle is going to help you is yeah. probably pretty low in this situation. I would agree with that. And it's going to be a hard needle exam because it's that that's 0.7 millimeters thick. So you literally get the tip of your needle in it. And then if you move at all, you're going to be out of it. So, you know, it's not very high risk because there's no lung coming in anywhere near where you're at. Um, you're just going to go into the liver if you go too deep. And they'll usually tell you because that, that peritoneum covering the liver is very sensitive. Um, but you just, it, it's tricky because there's so little, you're mostly going to be in intercostals and then you're going to get this tiny little ribbon of muscle to get the tip of your needle into. Right. Um, so, you know, generally you often will see a few fibs. You might see one or two really, you know, complex units. Um, but definitely there's quite a number of these where you don't find anything. So then you've kind of needled them for. Yeah. And I think it's anything. also. And it could be difficult because you get the intercostal firing too when they're mm -hmm. breathing, and then you you know you're trying to you know yeah it's they're hard. loud and they're and loud yeah they're right next to where because exactly these patients are often using their intercostals because they're so short of breath, um, and so it's hard to get them quiet while you're trying to listen for the right. so, characteristic diaphragm firing. Right. So then you're not really sure if I hear motor units, right. you know, is right. this really intercostals or not? So. And and then the last question is. Early on, you know, some other more diffuse neuromuscular disorders like myopathies. That's rare. That's rare to cause severe respiratory problems with myopathies. But from an ultrasound and diaphragm standpoint, if someone had, say, a severe myopathy affecting respiratory muscles, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't typically have unilateral significant differences. Is that no, correct? we we actually pulled that data from our lab from over a few, the few years that we'd done diaphragm ultrasound, and we found a small series of um, myopathy, diaphragm myopathy, and I don't know if it was even 18 patients. And what we found in that was there were a few that had some unilateral, more unilateral involvement, surprisingly, but the main, there were quite a few that had normal thickness at rest, but then they had abnormal thickening ratios, so they weren't contracting well. And there were a few, a handful of cases that only had the abnormal thickening ratio on one side, I think. I mm. presume those were kind of more mild myopathies. They had uh, EMG. These were all ones that had EMG evidence of myopathy on needle exam. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So we've got a little bit of data on it, not a lot. But, you know, myopathies classically do preserve muscle thickness um, on ultrasound. And then... But the you know the muscle echogenicity will change, and then of course if it's not functioning well, the contractility will change. So that's mm -hmm. what we're looking at. With we don't really have any data on echogenicity in the diaphragm. I just think it's tricky, unless you mm -hmm. have a big enough a big enough thick enough diaphragm to get a nice region of interest to measure the the grayscale. I I go much more on the function, which I base on the thickening. Right. Right. Okay. And so if, if things were fairly symmetric and there was a suspicion of myopathy in which you might still get CMAPs, you might not have asymmetric, right. uh, th that would be a situation that you would definitely, more likely needle. Definitely the, the needle muscle. would be helpful there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think so. And it would tell you how severe it was. You'd see fibs and you'd get an idea of the motor units. I mean, diaphragm motor units are on the smaller side, but when you get myopathies, they're really pretty tiny usually. So. Right. Good. So if, if for any listener who's not as 
comfortable or is learning ultrasound and wants to do learn to do this with the diaphragm, do you have any advice for them or suggestions on how to learn how to do this? So, I mean, the main thing with learning ultrasound is getting access to a machine. Once you have access to a machine, it's quite easy to learn because we have our samples to look at. And so diaphragm, I definitely recommend starting out on normal people and non-obese people. Um, and it's pretty easy to find in them. And then you can see the thickening and the more normals you do, the easier it is to, to start doing the abnormals. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if you are doing a patient that you're considering one side, I would always start on the normal side first. My usual rule of thumb is I start on the right side because the diaphragm is easier to see on the right. Uh, the liver just gives a really nice acoustic window. And this on the left side, you have spleen, but you sometimes have stomach or a gas, gas bubble in the stomach or something. So if you can start on the right, great. But if you know that the right side's abnormal, I usually would start on the left, take a look, see what it looks like. And then you kind of, that gives you your landmarks, your depth, where you should expect to see the diaphragm. And that kind of helps you figure it out when it is abnormal. Yeah. So I imagine you've scanned your own diaphragm many times. Is Does yours look better than mine that I showed you? Uh, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to compare diaphragm pretty scans sure, one day. Pretty sure it does, Devin. Yeah, I, I, mine, mine like doubles or triples. What yeah. is yours? You'd have to show me yours again. Yours look would, pretty good. Yeah, it's yours probably the golf. They, you play more <laughs> golf, and I'm sure that has an effect on the diaphragm. So <laughs> that's got to be it. I think yeah. it might be more my Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess yeah, the point is I better exercise more to try to keep up with you. No. Well, this is great. This is really you know, valuable information. Um, I, I think this is an interesting area and not as many people do phrenic nerve assessment. It's a complicated area. So your your insight and, and experience that you've shared here, I think is really valuable and will be valuable for the listeners. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. It was nice chatting today. Devin. Have a good yes, day. and I hope you have a great uh, rest of the day and not too many complicated surgeries. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks. Goodbye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Lessons from the Lab. I hope you found that it was valuable and educational in your practice, whether you perform neuromuscular ultrasound or not, or whether you assess diaphragm function in the EMG laboratory or not. I certainly got some very practical information from, from Andrea. Uh, it's interesting having her look at some of the ultrasounds that, that I've performed uh, giving some of those tips of how you identify the diaphragm. And I think as we saw, it's not always easy to identify the structures that are truly the diaphragm and distinguishing that from uh, the intercostal muscles. I think it's also useful to understand how do we measure the diaphragm thickening to, in, to, to minimize pitfalls in measurements and ensure accuracy of uh, of the measurements and interpretation of the findings. And I think it's also important to understand the utility of performing the nerve conduction studies and neuromuscular ultrasound in assessment of these complex patients. So hopefully you found this useful. For those of you who are learning or are planning to learn neuromuscular ultrasound, as Dr. Boone said, practice, get a machine, practice on yourself. It's easy to test the diaphragm, doesn't hurt.
it's kind of neat to see your diaphragm move. So I would encourage you to do that uh, when you're bored and have nothing else to do. Bye-bye.